0: Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, the J10 Initiative.
1: Hey, welcome to the podcast. Father John. Father Sean. And?
2: Well, is that you? Father Mike?
1: Father Mike, and we got a great, great guest with us this evening, Father Eric Gilbaugh. Welcome to the podcast. Good to be with you. Hello, everybody. Father Eric Gilbaugh is... uh, this is this is a great night tonight. We uh we're sitting in uh at Our Lady of Lord's and uh podcasting with a very old friend of ours. Uh Father Eric is a priest of Helena, Montana, pastor of uh St. John Vianney in Belgrade, Montana, and what's the name of the parish in uh, Three Forks? Holy Family. Holy Family. And uh yeah, he's just uh he's an old friend. I have to say, he's uh uh he's one of the best when it comes to banter. And uh <laughs> we got a lot That's of stories. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Yeah. we got a lot of history here. So We heard a lot of stories at dinner. We did, yeah, exactly. And there are many more to come. Father Sean is already probably sick here. He, can, the he can put it on repeat. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. This, so.
2: this guy is a great man. You ever met a great man? This guy, Father Gilba, is a great man. Happy uh, St. Margaret of Scotland Day. Thank you. Do you have a devotion? <laughs>
3: What about St. Gertrude? Yeah,
2: curiously, <laughs> I don't. Are you Scottish at all or what?
4: No. no What's I'm your not.
2: heritage here?
1: Uh, German, yeah.
2: Oh, yeah, that makes sense. We yeah. saw you in Germany. I was going to say, it yeah. makes
1: sense based on, like, the last five <laughs> trips we've taken with this guy. Yeah, so, so uh,
4: for those who don't know this, I bump into these guys all over the place, including Europe, Yeah. and uh, I ended up having an extremely traumatic uh experience in germany one time i went over there for a quick budget uh vacation
2: didn't you get miles
4: yeah i i'm sure somebody else's miles yeah, somebody else's <laughs> hook you up yeah. and you just end up over there so i end up in uh oh what was uh what was the city it was munich. munich munich yeah yeah so i i uh what i always did was i would uh set my uh, ATM card up for being uh, overseas and then I go to an ATM and I get euros and then I pay for everything in cash rather than with a credit card. So I didn't take any credit cards, just took my one debit card, get to an ATM in Munich, put it in, it takes it, and I wish that the picture from the camera could have made it onto the (laughs) internet of my face because... It says, "In it took the card, wouldn't give it back, and then said something in German. I don't speak, <laughs> read German, but I knew I wasn't. They probably get my, say, gotcha. Yeah, I wasn't getting my card back, and I was like, oh, no, oh no, 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 no,' and I was stranded in a foreign country with no money, including no ability to buy food <laughs> huh? or pay uh, for the uh, parking on the street for my rental car." And so tickets just immediately start piling up. I'm eating the free candy at the front (laughs) desk of this thing. I'm sending emails to banks trying to get this figured out. And, uh, and these guys, uh, I thought might be in Germany studying German because they were doing their degrees at the time. They were in Munich. They saved my bacon. They fed me. And, uh, and then we uh, we famously, I uh, said, "Hey, you want to?" Uh, oh, and I love this—throw <laughs> you under the bus, Napple. So these guys are supposed to be studying German. And for those of
1: you, this who... is actually not true. But go ahead, I know exactly what you're going to say. Okay, ahead. for those this of actually you, never happened. For but those okay, of you
4: yeah. who aren't familiar with uh, the, the German alphabet, <laughs> they have a double S that looks like an uppercase B, and. <laughs> mind you i'm not I'm not in doctoral studies. I'm not studying German uh-huh. uh, but uh, i get together with him and and uh, and uh, Neppel <laughs> says something like, hey, it's real easy. We just do walk down uh, Kaiser Wilhelm Straba and we'll be at the restaurant. and I'm like, I think that's Strasse." <laughs> <laughs>
1: he,
2: he had just started. he was only three weeks in. <laughs> so
1: yeah yeah, yeah you want to. Yeah, so let, let's let's finish this story, <laughs> Shawnee, if you'll indulge us. Like, uh, folks, we could be here all night. <laughs> all night. <laughs> I can't
2: be here all night. I gotta go. But yeah. this
1: is great that we got we got wrap here for this because. Uh, oh yeah. So, so Gilba flies in on his budget <laughs> his budget flight, which means he mooched miles off some poor some poor flight attendant uh, up in Montana. Flies in for nothing. His card gets eaten immediately. He's like crying out for help. We. It all works out uh and then Gilbaugh is a uh a, kind of a world war 2 buff cuz he uh technically was born as a gen xer but uh is really a greatest generation he's not a boomer he he was born in the 1930s we joked that he he was born in the depression he's been there ever since uh, you know uh, of youth. that's right yeah. if you
4: listen to this podcast firstly you have my sympathies secondly you might remember hearing my name because because uh <laughs> another time when we were in italy <laughs> And I was bragging about the great mileage that I was getting on the rental car. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah. And Apple couldn't have cared less. <laughs> and he, on the podcast, he's telling the story. And, he, and he's like, yeah, I think Gilbaugh probably uh,
1: washes his aluminum foil and reuses it. <laughs> he's a man of a different generation, which will pay off tonight because it'll help with the topic. But um, Those little uh, we were, I was making him a coffee this morning. He flew in and... Uh, I said, okay, so you're going over to Lord's house. He, he borrowed my car today, and I said, should I print you off some map quest directions <laughs> so you can get over there? Like, you know. But so, so he flies into Munich. We're we're hanging out, and uh, he's like, we got to go to uh, the Eagle's Nest because uh, he's a World War II buff and he wants to Hitler's mountaintop. Well, we, mountain went house. House we went to Hofbräu
2: House first.
1: Went to Hofbräu House, yeah. Didn't we? Yeah, we Hitler. Maybe not the same day. Basically
4: found. Helped to found uh, the Nazi Party in his image. Yeah. Not
2: just that; it's a famous beer hall too.
4: It is, but then I was like, "Hey, by the way, do you guys know what happened here?" And so, anyway,
1: yeah, it was it was amazing. Was and so facts. we hit the road, and uh, so Birches Garden is uh, southeast of Munich, almost in um, in Salzburg right at the border of austria and so but mike and i are finishing class and was like let's go let's go he picks us up at the strava wherever this was and <laughs> uh, and uh, we hit the road and uh we're driving 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 we stop at this uh you know auto gas whatever this thing is and uh we make our way down and uh hey there he is jacob machado we got the jacob. whole team here tonight wow. welcome buddy uh and so um we're just getting into it here. We we're, we're not going to do this for too long, but we got it we got to tell this story a little bit. I wasn't even planning on being here, but this is awesome. Hey, there you go. Come on in. Um and uh so we're going to the uh Eagles Nest, which is basically like uh this is like a, on top of a 14er. I mean, this is a magnificent Yeah, it's on it's on on an alpine peak. an incredible uh location.
4: If you've seen Band of Brothers, then that is the uh the house that they
1: conquer at the end of the series right at the end of the series and so we, we drive all the way out there and it's it's you know five six o'clock at night at this point and um we realize we get there all right this is the the guy has flown from montana the he's whole lost, vacation stinks it, hang, hangs on this thing he's, <laughs> he's lost got his no car. change of clothes. no change he's got nothing and we get out there and we miss the last bus to the top which drives you up to the uh, Eagle's Nest by like 10 minutes. But most people it Why say, did we miss the bus? Well, there was a particular <laughs> I stop. I not remember that. Uh, it was a bathroom stop. And, because... Uh, the, hey, come on, this is a family podcast. All right. Okay.
2: <laughs> Who's got the... somebody got an old man bladder. Somebody
4: just couldn't make it all the way to the... Uh, to the parking lot where the buses were
1: had to pull over. Had anyway, pull over. I digress. <laughs> he digresses.
2: <laughs> no, this is a man who will no digress. He'll here.
1: digress many times in this evening. So, so we get there, we'll miss the last bus. We're thinking, well, you know what? We better just call it and have some dinner and head back to Munich. And gilbaugh's like, oh no, we're going to the, we're going to the Eagles nest. So I have not come this far. We have not come this far. So we end up driving around. Now, granted. Uh, we have nothing. We have no food. We have no water. We have no clothes <laughs> for <Yes>. this. We, <laughs> we have no. We, we were dressed in we like. You're in dress shoes. Oh yeah. We. I mean, we were dressed as priests, and it's like. And you s- can't speak German. And we, uh, Mikey, <laughs> can, but I'm saying Strava. So apparently, you, you are I'm You like Strava. Strava. So, uh we get there, and uh we. It's about six thirty at night, and we start up the equivalent of a fourteener. Okay, this is like. This is like four thousand feet up, and so Jeez. we look like absolute haniacs. Mike's probably dressed like a you know hobo, Gilbush in dress shoes. We have nothing, and we, we but we start. We're doing it. We're committed. Uh, we're going to the we're going to the eagle's nest, and so we work our way up. And people are coming down, and they're like, "What are you doing? Is <laughs> this is insane?" It's like night is coming. Um, we keep going. We keep going. We we finally get up there, and the thing is closed for a private party. So we're like, you got to be kidding me! But again, we're, we're with Father Eric Gilbaugh. so who doesn't take no <laughs> for an scrappy.
4: answer? So, so I just went into the uh, kitchen, right, to Hitler's kitchen, and there's a woman <laughs> in there, like and, and 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 she looks at me like, "Who are you and what are you doing here?" And I, I said, "I beg you, we have just climbed up the side of this mountain. Just let us have a beer, please." And she's like. Uh, uh, there's a private party we're getting ready for you know that was a french accent but uh, (laughs) anyway i was gonna say yeah uh and and, and i'm I'm like have mercy please she goes okay so we go out on hitler's porch and they bring us some beer and we're sitting there we're the only people besides the uh, staff
2: there was a wedding party you remember that they were up the hill but there was a, like oh, a Oompa I band and everything? Well,
4: well yeah. No, Oompa. that was for the pri- private party. So the Oompa band shows up, and they start practicing, and they're like dressed in lederhosen. And we're sitting there, and the sun is setting, and it's just us. We've got the, Hitler's house to ourselves, <laughs> drinking beers like we're band of brothers, with uh, Bavarian uh, horns behind us, and... Uh, I was like, this ain't bad, huh, boys? Oh, it, you was,
1: know. it was unbelievable. I, I believe you did make Mike pose as Eva Braun I did, yeah. for a photo. Oh, no, yeah. you can't say that? You made a lovely Canceled.
4: Eva Braun.
2: <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. You know, this was a well, setup. Put
4: the, put the dress on. You this must was...
2: Have... <laughs> <laughs> well, what am I supposed to do? No, he didn't. That's an everyday. I just made the, that. Uh, so Gilbo's just like, hey, why don't you uh, sit on this... Uh, sit on this fireplace why don't you uh, lean back a little bit and say, what is going on here
4: so i i had these pictures of eva broad hitler's mistress sitting in front of that oh. very fireplace yeah
3: so anyway so then eva,
2: he I, I was not i was hoping we would not add that part I of know,
1: the story know, I'm sorry it, it had to come in so but the one thing i do hold against this man is that so then a later trip he just randomly takes a budget vacation to italy where mike and i are and uh we go up to florence for an evening and uh, we're sitting at a nice restaurant now. Florence is famous for a number of things, but one of which is the Fiorentina, the the Florentine steaks. You've heard this story, absolutely Shani, delicious. You've heard this. I don't think I have, but oh, I'm thick, intrigued. Thick steak, and I'm part of this. Fresh story. beef, so wrap, and I'm still and confused. Gilba and Gilba found a great place right in the heart of Florence. Uh, nice. They actually paid us to eat there. Yeah, and so <laughs> so we're at this uh, at this place, and we're sitting down. And and uh, but again, Eric Gilba. This man who's born in the depression and uh, you know is very very careful about how he spends every cent. Uh, a says, gentlemen, these uh, these Florentine steaks are, are a little pricey, so we, we probably should not all order them. You know, we should probably split them. So I think okay. So he goes, all right, yeah, let's order a few, and then uh, you know, Nepple, why don't you order a pasta, and we'll kind of just you know share everything. And I think okay, great, fine. <laughs> the meal comes out. I get a pasta. Okay. These two get their Fiorentine steaks. These beautiful, huge cuts, enormous, absolutely enormous. The best, the best in Italy. Delicious, uh, incredible. Mm. And I'm like, all right, let's let's uh, cut these up. And I start kind of chopping up my thing, just like tonight. You know, you saw a little PTSD in Gilba tonight. You stole some of my food tonight. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I I I start handing the pasta over him, and he goes, "What are you doing?" (laughs) He goes, "I said we're we're sharing everything," and he goes. You ordered pasta. <laughs> this is our steaks. Yeah, I look to Mike what are you and I'm like, to do? I'm like, Rap, you got to be kidding me! Like, I'm not eating pasta. This is like, we're doing steaks. We're in Florence. Yeah, look at this steak. And Rap looks and me like, oh, You should have ordered a, a steak. <laughs> and I'm like, You've got, you have got to be kidding me! Like, so, I got totally smoked out of all one of, of these. that. Story is true
4: except for the first part uh, about the agreement of sharing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, because, I think somebody was confused. Yeah, because I've still. This is the first time right now tonight that I have ever heard this because I've I've been so confused all these years. He gives me a hard time about this. I ordered my own dinner and then then another man gets uh, angry at me over the dinner and I said, what's the matter? And he won't tell me what's the matter. But he will lean over the table and just <laughs> cut parts of my steak off and then eat them. You don't and eat I'm, a man, and I'm get, like, what's going on you here? You Don't eat another man's steak. And then he remains angry. So I'm like, how can it be that you eat my food and remain <laughs> upset? I was completely confused. It so. is.
1: It's a very confusing story and a very confusing Oh But we got through it, you know. Yeah. And
4: so, yeah. And then we uh, we left my crap in uh, Assisi. We did. We what, left. Him what there. was
2: I doing? Well, I love Assisi.
4: That was a good question, because we woke up, we were supposed to leave together, but oh, you didn't, wouldn't right. get out of bed. <laughs> and so right. we had to leave, and I was
1: like, okay, I, I well. I think you wanted to celebrate the Feast of St. Francis. That's right. It was on
2: the feast day of St. Francis, and these guys decided to go to France instead of celebrating the great St. Francis <laughs> right. well, we're in we're town.
4: In that's true. Well, we were there on the night before for the celebration. Do you remember the yeah, name that's of the... True. the, the uh, a cheap hotel i got <laughs> that we left no. you at <laughs> no. the it was the Citadel of Hospitality
3: <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, no
4: in italian what was uh like Citadella di ospitale you know or yeah. something like that yeah and it was just this the, this reinforced concrete <laughs> bunker Yeah, it place. was like a, it a was monk's the most, cell. it was like the most un assisi like ugly ugly place <laughs> the citadel of <laughs> it was the you. castle
2: but it was the castle man yeah. well we could All go right, we, well we with go that on traumatic yeah, tonight, memory yeah. Yeah. i got to get out of here okay, It's right. welcome thanks another you drop priest away. over hey, to our to house see you. It's great to see you gilbert you're a great man you're a great man du bist ein hobo there's a little a little lesson for you of german
1: thanks so i think that um yeah i mean we could we could literally go all night literally he loves loves this when i say literally literally
3: that is so random yeah
1: yeah bring jake into the uh, conversation here mikey good to see you buddy thanks for coming in yep take care man god bless you so uh father eric gilbaugh maybe give us a a brief uh rundown your story who you are where you're from what you've been doing uh before we get into the uh, content tonight and why am i here why are you here sure how, well, do you, how do you identify, you know, these things? Yeah, well, uh,
4: so, uh, you may be thinking that I'm an old man, but I'm actually not. I'm uh, 44 years old, born in 1977, so to put put myself in context, because we're going to be talking about uh, liturgy, um, uh, I was born only seven years after the uh, Roman Missal uh, Revised was published. So... Uh, things were still uh, becoming adapted, getting going, um, and then I was a boy in the nineteen uh, eighties. So I would imagine that uh, for your listenership, I suppose you would say, "I, uh, you know, I'm a generation older." Let's say that many of you are in your twenties and thirties, born in the uh, born in the nineties or maybe the late eighties. So I was I was an actual witness to the liturgical craziness that uh you might think uh, are exaggerations but they really you know weren't uh i i've seen it all i've seen the organ replaced with uh, the folk band i've seen uh, a girl dancing uh, in a tutu in the sanctuary i've seen uh yeah so i've seen it all. so i saw all of that and the trauma and so on uh, but i was a boy and uh come from a, a You know, a good uh, Catholic family, both parents Catholic, and uh, uh, they were born in the 40s, and they were just sort of going along, but also a bit bemused as to, you know, what was happening to their church and why their son, uh, you know, was being formed to receive communion uh, in his palm rather than on the tongue and all those kind of things. But that was the case with everything. Uh, Pontificate of JP two. you know, I was an adult for uh, much of that, I uh, uh, was ordained a priest uh, right after Benedict was elected. I've been a priest now for uh, just about 17 years, Diocese of Helena, Montana. And, uh, and so saw the, uh, the different stages liturgically, lived them. Um, you know, it's not terribly academic for me, but, but what has to be academic is, of course, everything that went before. And so one of my interests has been to study and try to understand and appreciate uh what occurred before i was born and the contrasts and why the contrasts were so dramatic and uh because as a priest i've had to bridge or attempt to bridge divides uh, between people who uh, just don't understand but also are not theologians you know and perhaps don't have time to get into all of this and i have the benefit of uh, um two degrees in theology a degree in philosophy so uh, i've always thought that it would be good to just better understand this uh liturgical divide and then hopefully also be able to bridge generational divides and ideological divides
1: which you have and you do and so it's a great joy to welcome you tonight to the podcast um The backstory behind this one tonight, this is a special one for us, and I'm really grateful that uh, Sean and Jacob and Father Mike um, are here to kind of share in this and to to be a part of this, because Gilba has been a a close friend of mine for many years. Uh, I showed up at the seminary in Denver in 2004. And he was already at the height of his kind of reign. Uh, he was one of these just kind of larger-than-life personalities. We obviously became friends very quickly. We got a lot of stories from the seminary yeah, days. Yeah, because Nepal's a smaller-than-life personality. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. It, we we won't uh, go into those stories, but um, <laughs> he and I uh, have been. Um, he's been a, he's been a great brother and a great friend. But he's also really has stepped into uh, parish life a, a lot earlier than I did, and he's been a pastor a lot longer than I have. Uh, I've had the privilege of uh, not just traveling with him, but also uh, since I came back in 2019 to do seminary work, uh, we have great Montana men from Helena uh, coming down, which brings me to Montana every June uh, to celebrate their ordinations. And uh, I make a regular occasion to fly into Bozeman where he is um, and to spend uh, a day or two with him. And this last June, uh, we were sitting around the fire, He's got a great uh, fire pit in his backyard, and uh, we were, we were just, just, we'd we just discuss a number of things. Um, and, uh, but in particular, he, he started to go into uh, some of the liturgical uh, questions and uh, kind of just the history of the Reform, but he did it with a, with a kind of an insight and uh, a pastoral wisdom, but also a, a man who has really studied and really understood uh, some of the issues that are most controversial right now. And uh, it was in that moment that I was like, we need to capture this and we need to represent this uh, on a podcast. And so uh, he really graciously came down from Montana just to record this with us. And uh, Father Sean and I have been talking about this uh, for a bit because uh, Father Sean is also seeing, you know, as you'll as you'll probably talk about, you're seeing this uh, in the world we're living in right now. And this these are questions in the hearts of young Catholics, and we're, and we're hoping that this tonight will be... Uh, an opportunity to kind of uh, do a deep dive into the history and the theology of some of the more particular liturgical questions, but also locate them within the larger context of kind of what did happen at Vatican II and how do
3: we get where we're at. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's spot on. And I remember first pitching this, or when you pitched this idea to me, John, I was just talking about like, uh, because this is, this is the world that I honestly live in at Our Lady of Lords. is it's very much a uh, a leaning towards a very traditional community, which is great. But then at what point do we ever push it too far? Like, can we go too far? And I think those are the good questions, hopefully, that we can get into tonight. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. So I, I have many follow-up questions. but Well, I
4: think it would be probably be helpful, too, if I just, uh, um, well, first of all, you know, would just say I, I'm very, very honored by this invitation. I'm, I'm unworthy of the very kind things that uh, Father uh, John has said. Um, but being a parish priest, uh, uh, and, and I, so I began um, that in 2005, the uh, motu Proprio came out in 2007. So uh, I have been a priest through that, and then also this has corresponded with the, uh, the waning influence <clears throat> just because of you know, death and pass- passing away. Uh, of an older generation that still had roots in uh, the preconciliar uh, liturgy, and then the rise of a new generation that uh, you know just to make myself sound old but <laughs> let 's say that let 's say that you were born while I was you know doing my philosophy studies, okay, you could be getting married now, no problem you are you 're not a kid you 're an adult and uh, and yet your experience has been radically, radically different than mine because so much was happening so fast and changing so much. And so you uh, quite reasonably might say, well, um, you know, I, I was born in 1998, let's just say. I'm 24 years old right now, and uh, my only experience of, of good liturgy, uh, reverent liturgy, um, you know, non-goofy things has been in this environment, I don't understand why this shouldn't just be uh, the way it should be everywhere or whatever. Uh, And, uh, and then as a, as a parish priest, uh, having to be the one who actualizes and is the locus of all things, liturgical means that, as you just said, father, you're going to be the one who has people approach you in anger. You know, why are you changing this? Why do we have to do that? Why do we have to go back to that? Uh, or why can't we have this, right. or you're, you're, trying to, uh, you're trying to take the church backwards, or you're not, you know, blah, 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 it's really tough when, you, when you're boots on the ground in the midst of it, you know, not just in an armchair reading, uh, reading books and thinking hypotheticals. So, whatever it's worth, I, I hope that uh, whatever I would have to share tonight would be worthy of your expectations and of benefit uh, to you, the listeners.
1: And it will be so. Uh, let's dive in. Uh, we got kind of three. Uh, this is going to be a bit more content uh, than probably the usual uh, podcast for us, uh, because we want to take advantage of this guy while we got him down here. So we're gonna we're gonna kind of take this in three parts tonight. So the the first part is going to be uh, we want to lay the background uh, for 20th century liturgical movement. Uh, what happened? What's the history? because uh, that really is the foundation. And so we're going to start with that. And then uh, Father Sean and Father Eric and I have focused on uh, what we call Gilbaugh's top five. Uh, These are the big five areas of focus. Uh, It's half the excellence of a top ten. That's right. (laughs) That's right, right. yeah. This is not this. This this David Letterman's top ten or ESPN. Sacred music, uh, language, uh, priestly posture, reception of communion, and the role of the lady in the divine liturgy. So we'll go into that. That's kind of the... Kind of the 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 kind of more, most practical kind of questions that people might be asking, and then we're going to close it out with uh, what does the ideal mass look like according to the church? Thinking with the church, and then how do we draw conclusions around that in, in light of our present problems and proposal? So, sound good, yeah. Gilba? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so start us off with uh, first the first section here twentieth century liturgical movement. Um, you know, uh just jump you right bet. in Vatican II.
4: Let's well, go uh yeah and uh so one thing that I have found uh to be uh most lamentable and then practically frustrating is uh the the broad ignorance um, uh, on the part of people of all different ideological stripes of the liturgical movement of the twentieth century, which was absolutely massive uh monumental uh widespread broad um, and yet now, almost, it seems forgotten. And to a large degree, I think that that is just because of uh, the change of generations. Uh, let's, you know, take uh, take uh, Pope uh, Emeritus uh, Benedict Sixteenth, right? I mean, the man is in his 90s. You know, his lifespan technically could have easily ended 20 years ago. And he was a young man in the midst of that, right? Mm-hmm. He He wasn't even a bishop at the Second Vatican Council. He was just a young priest. Yep. So... You have to be nearly dead <laughs> to even have a living memory of the twentieth uh, century liturgical movement unless you knew about it as a seven year old child right so um, so for the average person it's good to be aware that uh, more or less here's here is the background of the context uh, in the uh in the Uh, 1800s that is the 19th century we really saw the rise of scholarship as we know it today you know from the university systems of the world and the development of the various disciplines that we now take for granted that are everywhere archaeology by and large didn't exist it wasn't a thing right it became a discipline a scholarly discipline Liturgy became a scholarly discipline unto itself, it hadn't been before. You know, all the uh, all the others, you know, sociology, psycho, you know. You go back a little ways, and these things just don't even exist. So this academic uh, rise and development then takes us to the cusp of the 20th century, and more or less, here's what happened. An awful lot of data had been uh, accumulated over the course of the... Uh, Of the 1800s, and that would be, for example, discovery of uh, ancient documents, uh, renewed study of patristics, whereas, you know, they maybe had languished a little bit uh, under scholasticism, Uh, archaeologists going around digging up ancient churches, floor plans, um, things like that, the excavation of the catacombs, all of a sudden, oh, it's like we've got photographs of liturgies from you know 200 AD we didn't have those before so we've got all of this data then what to do with it if anything and uh, Pope Saint Pius the tenth uh, who was Pope um, uh, in the very very early uh, uh, part of the 20th century um, a bit of his biography helps us to understand so he was he was born very poor but then, he was eventually made the uh, Patriarch of Venice. So he went from an experience of uh, very, uh, let's just say, low um, liturgy to very, very high liturgy in Venice. And I remember reading one time that he uh, he was seemingly, uh, uh, I don't know if annoyed is <laughs> is the right term. It sounds fairly pejorative, but you could imagine Venice in, uh, you know, in 1895 let's say operatic masses that were more performances than divine worship you know like for example there's a joke uh, I remember reading uh, Eye of the Tiber is a really funny uh, satirical <laughs> uh, site and so I have I have their book and uh, one of their uh, fake uh, news headlines is uh, 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 folk band uh, annoyed that the uh, prayers at the altar are interrupting their performance, <laughs> you know? So uh, if you can identify it all with the idea of music being performance, but maybe in a bad kind of modern music way, well, just imagine that you're the Patriarch of Venice and you're sitting there and you've got to wait for this choir that's trained for weeks to show off to finish. And you're just like, you know, sweet mercy. Like, uh, how long does the glory have to be? And and uh, And so he introduced the mandate that Gregorian chant, as we term it, or just, if you will, Western chant, should be normative in all masses throughout the world, uh, from high to low. Now, uh, as as like a marker of uh, traditionalism, uh, certainly chant would be one of them. But uh, it's interesting to note that if you went back before... Uh, 1900, you went around to parish churches, be they in France or the United States or Mexico or wherever, you wouldn't be hearing chant. And the reason that you wouldn't is because it had more or less been relegated to the monasteries and some other religious communities. And it was the patrimony of the church and, uh, of course, universal in the Eastern Rites and so on. And then all of a sudden, by papal mandate, uh, one day, we're all supposed to be chanting again. And this Struck the church as quite heavy handed and bizarre because, uh, you think about the tradition of polyphony, think about the great choral masses, think about Beethoven and Mozart, if you will, that seemed to be the ideal. And then, here, this, uh, you know, uh, barefooted poor uh, uh, guy who's now pope says, You know what, let's, let's all be monks, let's all chant. But, because it was the era uh, in which if the Pope says, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, everybody saluted and went, yep, okay. And that reintroduced the tradition of chant. But I hope that you can appreciate, by my putting that in context, how that would have seemed very strange, very top-heavy. As a for example, he began the 20th century liturgical movement, which basically was scholarly, uh, papal, and reformist. And so uh, I think that uh, Pope Benedict the Fifteenth, Pope during the First World War, might be an exception uh, liturgically. But other than he, every single 20th century pope uh, played a role, in one way or another, in, uh, in reform of the liturgy, and by that I mean the Eucharistic liturgy, of course the other liturgies too, but we're talking about the Eucharistic liturgy, or in the, in the West, the Mass, the Roman Rite, um, and that was that was music, that was uh, reform of the structure of the rites, that concerned many of the topics that we'll get into here momentarily, but it was, again, it was scholarly, it was papal, uh, and it was reformist. And the idea was, we are now aware, we weren't in the past, we weren't at the time of Trent, the Reformation, we weren't the Middle Ages, we are aware of data that shows us that the current form of the Roman liturgy, the Roman rite, uh, is vastly different than it was in previous centuries, and we now also can have the scholarly understanding of how this got duplicated, how this got inserted, how this got removed, and so on. So let us try to restore the rite to something
1: that is more well-rounded and less uh, cumbersome. Okay. I, 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 oh, I was just going to say, that is uh, such an important context because... By the time you hit 1962 and the Second Vatican Council starts, which you're going to talk about here in a second, I'm sure, the first thing that is dealt with is the Reform of the Liturgy, and it's the fastest thing to be promulgated by the council, by the thousands of bishops who almost near unanimously, there was only four bishops, only four out of the thousands who were at the council, who did not vote against the final version of Sacrosancta Concilium, which was the reform of the liturgy. So this this notion that there was uh, reform, a need for the reform of the liturgy is not just this kind of arbitrary thing that just was invented in the 60s. This is something that had been going on for decades, and that, as you said, was scholarly, and that had been led by great popes. That's
4: uh, right, and, and so I think the suspicion today amongst uh, a good people is that this so-called reform wasn't really a reform but rather a modernist um, attempt a liberal agenda to uh, to change the mass into something that it was never before wasn't supposed to be and uh, was uh, probably uh, had an agenda uh, vis-a-vis uh, Protestantism and movements and, and Protestant liturgy and so on I that was that was simply not the case now I will add a caveat here but to your point uh, father the so the the church is interrupted by two world wars she is unable to accomplish her agenda in full freedom and after the dust has settled um, only a few years after the second world War uh, Pope John uh, the 23rd calls all the bishops of the church into the largest most, most truly ecumenical council that has ever existed. Um, And what is their first topic? Uh, I mean, is it rebuilding the ravaged church? No. Is it increasing vocations? Wasn't a liability. Is it evangelization? No. Many, many good things. It is finishing this project. So Vatican II was the climax of the movement, but the movement was much, much, much older than the council.
3: I appreciate your point about archaeology just in general of like seeing there is a rediscovery of of a new science, uh, a rediscovery in the new science. There is a rediscovery of look at the catacombs, look at these pictures, look at these images, look at like we're uncovering churches. And uh, right. you, You get a chance to go to the Holy Land. You see the ruins, you see the things that were uncovered. And that that teaches us something about these people, about the early Christians, about the way that they celebrated liturgy. And that's just helpful to think. That archaeology came about in the 19th century. That's so recent. Yeah,
4: and there's a good example. So in the Holy Land, where I've been, uh, if you've been to Capernaum, uh, you know that there is uh, there is a church that was discovered in the 1800s. Well, the whole the whole town was discovered in the 1800s by Franciscan archaeologists, and the the uh, uh, the church there, uh, which is now protected by a fairly ugly modernistic <laughs> church on top of it, is believed to have been saint peter's house which then became a house church which then had a larger church built around it to protect it so all of a sudden you can look at this and go why is this a hexagon that's odd Mm -hmm. why is it you know and with other churches why is this altar here rather than there or those sorts of things and maybe they'd always been there but nobody uh, was asking questions like that and studying those sorts of things so yes at vatican II." As Father John said, uh, the the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy was voted on 2,147 bishops in favor to four against. That is 99.8% agreement. You find anything that any group of people would agree on that much. Okay, so please appreciate, folks, this is not some wacko leftist uh, agenda-driven project. This is this is absolute unanimity um, amongst the pastors of the Church under the headship of the Pope at an ecumenical council guided by the Holy Spirit, okay? And so they issue a, con- a constitution. And just like in the United States, we have uh, millions of laws, but they have to be in accord with the Constitution. The document is constitutive of that which results. Well, similarly, so the Roman right... Uh, the, the, that document of the council is the constitution. It's not listing every law, every rubric, every that would come. It is it is laying out the basic principles. Uh, and if you read it, I think that you you know would find that it is, uh, is very good and quite reasonable. So that is issue. That's the climax of the uh, liturgical movement. That's our background for the topic today. And this is the way that I put it. Uh, there were two camps. Ideological camps that were battling in the church during the uh, post war period. And I will, I will uh, uh, term those uh, uh, modernists, to use the term, um, the critical term from um, uh, Pope Pius X, okay? If you will, ideological liberals, those who um, were really enchanted with the modern world and wanted to modernize the mass. That wasn't the agenda of the liturgical movement. That was not the agenda of the council or Sacrosanctum Concilium at all. But nevertheless, they existed. They held power, influence. They were real people. Then there was this other camp, the Ajournamento camp. and uh, uh, Or pardon me, not the Ajournamento camp, the Resource Monk camp. Yeah. And uh, that was going back to the resources that we've talked about and trying to um, understand, uh, so as to reform. And so Ratzinger, for example, was certainly a uh, a resource Mont uh, theologian. And very quickly everything uh, shook out, such that the way I put it is, the resource Mont camp got the documents, and the modernist camp got the reality. Hmm. So uh perception is reality right so so 1968 uh uh guitar folk mass goofy vestments weirdness going on when only a few years before you know it would have been extraordinarily rigorous and silent and reverent and everything it's understandable people would go this is the result of the council um and i just want people to appreciate that is not the case um so uh, that's how I would sum it up anyway, in terms of like what ended up uh, shaking out. Uh, correlation does not equal causation. So please do not blame the council uh, or the magisterium for the bad uh, result, all the chaos, all the abuses, um, and so on, some of which I witnessed myself and, and mentioned. So after that, um, sad to say, Pope, Pope Paul VI kind of just shut down during the 1970s. And uh, I say to his discredit... Uh, really did not exert discipline or authority, uh, such that when Pope John Paul II came along, first with a soft hand, but then increasingly with a firm hand, he began what came to be known as the Reform of the Reform, which is really just, you know, uh, trying to actualize what was intended by the Council. Uh, Then, of course, uh, Ratzinger, um, who had more sympathy for the traditionalist movement, and I, I use that term traditionalist as opposed to traditional um, because, of course, we should all be traditional. How could you be Catholic and not be traditional? But traditionalist has uh, uh, you know the, the meaning of desiring to go back to that which uh, existed before the, the council and uh, changes, okay? Um, and I'll just mention that uh, a branch of my family went into schism uh, I didn't know this is a boy, but uh, because they perceived that the church was going astray. Mm. and uh, and they were in a sect that was in schism, um, you know, uh, offering all of the sacraments, um, according to the older forms of the uh, of the rites and so on. And thanks be to God. Some of that uh, branch have come back actually into communion with uh, with the church, and very happily so I think but when I was a boy, uh, those groups were really really fringy I mean very often uh, weird personalities almost cult like groups uh, we, we even had in montana we had uh we had a pope yeah um, you got a pope up there don't yeah guess. Pope Pius the thirteenth that's right you know uh, and they uh, and so uh, appreciate if you're younger that uh, for decades the argument was always uh, the craziness the silliness the chaos it's not legitimate what we need to do is devote our energies to to doing what the documents say what the church says let's do that okay but nobody was was really giving serious consideration to well maybe this project was really all wrong and we need to To go back and just admit that we made a mistake no but after the voto proprio which caught the whole catholic world by surprise then now uh it's understandable that that which used to be extraordinarily fringy um has become in some areas mainstream and i get it i get it because as i said if that's the only way that you're experiencing good liturgy reverent
1: liturgy prayerful liturgy etc hey you know, so I think that the the two things that we take from the uh, the pontificate of uh, Pope Benedict, the modo proprio, as you mentioned, uh, simorum pontificum, or however it's pronounced, I always get it wrong. Um, Straba, like, it's like my uh, <laughs> straf- my German. Uh, reintroducing the what he called the extraordinary form of the Mass. Yes. Uh, so like I'm thinking about my mom listening to this right now, mm-hmm. uh, which she is, and she's like, "Oh, it's so good. You're with Eric right now tonight. You guys are having so much fun." You know. <laughs> Uh, but she might not be fully aware of the kind of the nuances of this. So just very briefly, like uh, Pope Benedict reintroduces this, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, John Paul II does not, but all of them are committed to the reform of the reform, as you said, and that leads to the second point, 2005, December. Pope Benedict is uh, brand new as Pope, six months, and he gets up in front of the Roman Curia, which is all the Vatican officials, and he says, we need to move forward with what he calls the hermeneutic of continuity, Mm-hmm. We there's uh, the Second Vatican Council set reforms in place. We need reforms of the reforms. The mm-hmm. reform did not go right, uh, and John Paul II kind of put us back on the right trajectory here. Um, but we need continuity. We need a, a hermeneutic or, or an interpretation of the council that is continuous with the tradition of the church and not one of rupture and dis- yes. discord. And and he so he
4: framed it in that way, which is very good. But uh, I will. Uh, criticize um pope emeritus benedict uh, respectfully but i don't think you know he's a he's a good theologian he wouldn't mind uh somebody respectfully disagreeing with a prudential judgment he made uh and uh so for the you know i'll just lay all my cards out on the table you know i'm a big fan of pope john paul ii i'm a big fan of uh pope benedict so uh let me say that but i fault both of those uh men to some degree for some um maybe a laxity in, uh, in disciplining the, the liturgy, and you know maybe they couldn't. But here's an example with Benedict. So he says, uh, hermeneutic of continuity. Oh, and now you know what? You can just offer the sacraments according to the old rites, and I'm going to circumvent your local bishop, by the way, too. <laughs> oh, uh, how is that a hermeneutic of continuity? How is that the reform of the reform? Um, as before he became Pope, he wrote, he, he, uh, he argued, and I agree with him, for the restoration of the common directional posture of the people and the ministers. Uh, you know, odd orient, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Okay, so he says, we must restore this. All right, so then you get elected Pope. Great, restore it. You could say tomorrow this will be starting again, advent Everybody. first Sunday event yeah, he didn't do it yeah. uh, but in but in kind of a back doorway, said, but the mass can be offered this way, but uh, but only if it's done according to the to the older form of the right. Well, in my opinion, that's very pastorally and theologically dysfunctional. Have we experienced dysfunction <laughs> since then? I think <laughs> yeah. many people, regardless of their position, would say yes and i would also fa- fault uh, pope francis too but i'm not here to uh, rag on uh, on popes and i i desire to be a priest who would never speak disrespectfully ever of a bishop of rome but only respectfully disagree with a prudential judgment that he's made but there's a there's a for example
1: so um uh, okay, good. I think that we need to continue on um, here, so let's go yeah. ahead and give any final thoughts you have, and then, uh, Jacob and Shani, any any uh, ideas or questions you might have? Here's a
4: final thought, and then let's get into these topics. Here's an analogy. Um, uh, so, uh, so the Catholic Church, uh, our mother, uh, was in the 20th century certainly wed to western civilization if you will almost like a father and uh, the analogy that i have is this people will go how could uh how could all of this have happened okay well let's imagine like a mother of a household says i'm going to reform the order of our of our household so that it, so that everybody's better served we've got things we're eating dinner too late we're doing this at the wrong time uh, people aren't doing the right chores and everything so so I'm the mother and I'm going to say, we're going to, we're going to have a reform of the way of the house order. That's kind of like the church saying, we, we are going to reform our worship to better serve everybody. And then imagine a mother saying that, okay, here's our new schedule and how we're going to do it. And then dad has a nervous breakdown. Would her re- new order get implemented? No, because now it's damage control and this trauma. Right. Yeah. Well, when, <laughs> when did the Second Vatican Council occur? Early 1960s. When did western civilization have a nervous breakdown? Mid to late 1960s. Yeah. Was the was Holy Mother Church's new order ever implemented? No. So can you fault somebody for uh disagreeing with something that they have only heard hypothetically? I don't I don't think so. But yeah. that's the purpose of this discussion, is to help people understand.
1: I think it's hard to it's hard to express how radically things the world blew up, that nervous oh. breakdown of Western civilization that yeah. happened in 1968. Yeah,
4: and people today when they lament like, oh, the world's so divided and terrible and blah, blah, I say, you know what, honey? Go back to 1968. Yeah. Just live through one year, yeah. 1968 only. There's documentaries made about it. Look it up.
1: It puts whatever we're doing to shame. Absolutely. So, I mean, you're you're born in 1977, so as we talked about just within the decade of all of this happening, but... Father Sean, Jacob, any thoughts or questions on this? You know, in terms of guys who are not middle-aged, like the two of us. <laughs> Go ahead,
3: Jacob.
0: Yeah, um, born '91. I grew up. JP two was the guy, um, and then into his the, the waning time of his uh, his papacy. But all I knew was the post-conciliar Church, right? And um, I had no idea any of this stuff was going on until much later. And now, uh, as I'm studying the Missal for the first time, really, uh, getting ready for diaconate, it's seeing what the Church wants, um, which we're going to get to thinking with the mind of the Church, is has been eye-opening uh, and heart-opening for me. And I think with the hermeneutic of continuity, I look at all of these ideological moves that you're talking about, and so we can... We can say the church was was wrong until this point or was wrong after this point. And so you, if you go too far on the Ressource Mont, um, we need to go back to, you know, basement house churches only. You go too far into Trent, you say the church was wrong until 1600s. And then we have the true expression. And then if you say no, the the Modernist movement. We aren't even there yet. We've got to keep transforming the liturgy until it gets to this modern presentation um, that we haven't even found yet. All of these are saying the church is wrong, has been wrong, or will be wrong, which means there's never been any guidance from the Holy Spirit. And what are we doing here? Yeah. And and Amen. I I just think from that perspective, uh, is that where we can start to heal and say let's let's go to the the Church.
4: And that's the benefit of there being an ecumenical council at the center of this, because uh, if you are a Catholic, you cannot argue legitimately that an ecumenical council and the most broad and true, truly ecumenical, practically speaking, that it ever existed presided over by popes issuing documents with virtually near anonymity is not legitimate and divorced from the Holy Spirit. That makes you a heretic if you said that. So, uh, so we're not talking about an encyclical. We're not talking about the the reissuing of a missile. We're talking about a constitution on the divine liturgy that applies to the Roman rite from a council, and then the rest are details and understanding. You know. Yeah. Well, How did we get to the tutu? That's that's details and context, but that's different,
3: properly speaking, than the uh, than the work of the council itself. So.
1: Shani, any thoughts before we continue? I don't
3: think so. I, I want to really dive into the the five kind of points because I think this is where, um, I think this is what's going to be most interesting to our listeners. So I think we should move on.
1: Let's do it. And uh, I'll just say, as a kind of point leading into this, this is kind of part two now. Um, so the thing that I loved about my conversation with Father Eric this summer was his stress of we have to help people think with the church. To to uh, and that that is so essential. Like it's not just about what is your preference, what is your interest. You know, what do you what do you like doing? But like, what does the church actually say? And I think he's got a good point on this. Yeah, and, and the three of us, uh, Father Sean and Father Eric and I. Have, We've been riffing some different ideas around it, but we've distilled it down to, like, here's the big five. So yeah. we, we can't go all night, but uh, I'm going to turn it back over to Father Eric and just, like, let's go into... Because we, we all agreed the, these are kind of the big five questions that everybody seems to be asking that seem to be most controversial. So yeah, so off, fire away. in
4: your in your parish life, if you're a priest uh, or if you're uh, involved in the parish on the councillor, whatever... These five are probably going to come up or be points of contention, conflict, people leaving a parish or going to a parish or whatever, and uh, certainly for priests, uh, you know, often very draining, (laughs) Uh, because we're not all on the same page, uh, and there's not uh, unanimity. So the first of these concerns uh, sacred music, all right? uh, yeah, like uh, like anybody's not experienced uh, sacred music as like a locus of uh, of liturgical uh, energy uh, in a in a parish. So you know we've we've seen it all over um, the last uh, decades: uh, folk music uh, variants in instruments, uh, or no instruments, uh, chant, hymnody. Um, you know, Broadway show tunes. Uh, f- I mean, I mean, serious. You laugh, but like in the nineteen seventies, yeah. yeah, like 1970s uh, still. Uh, today. So I, hey, let's sing "Bridge Over Troubled Water." That that actually happened, and not just once, right? Okay, so I mean, this stuff is real. Um, and uh, so sacred music will often be uh, the lightning rod for things. I mean, if a priest comes in and says, "Let's start using the organ again," I mean. You're going to be people who are like, great, and people like, oh, you know, oh, boy. Or if, if somebody said, uh, let's, let's have an acoustic guitar, uh, you, know, uh, you know, whatever. Okay, so we, hopefully we could all agree on that. Um, what this comes down to really is, um, uh, well, let's just name one thing, aesthetics. Uh, aesthetics, aesthetics and tastes, because we all have different uh, uh, tastes when it comes to music. And uh, we're a very, uh, we have a very consumerist mentality, of course. And if one can find variety, let's say one lives in an urban setting, it's tempting to say, I'm going to go to the parish that's not my own, because aesthetically, uh, I, I experience the music that, that appeals to me. And there's nothing wrong with, with having a particular draw to one uh, aesthetic or another, uh, what is wrong is when you uh, violate relationship <laughs> b- because you prioritize aesthetics. So uh, what does the Church teach concerning music? And here we, we can point to a little bit of dysfunction on the part of uh, Holy Mother Church and her guidance. Uh, there was only one instrument exclusively in the Roman Rite that was uh, allowed and for centuries, and that was the organ. Mm-hmm. Okay, we all know that. Right. So mm-hmm. then the Church uh, allowed... Um, that uh, other instruments, uh, which were to be determined by uh, the Episcopal conferences, I think it was, um, may be introduced. Well, there was never any vetting of instruments or whatever. It's just like, hey, 1967, uh, uh, tambourines. Are you saying the rain stick was not? <laughs> no. So, yeah, I mean, in Montana, very conser- very conservative state pulled out a rain stick you know uh, with a <laughs> brother priest of mine you know again folks if you weren't there it was real okay <laughs> there was there was a girl turning the rain stick upside down at the end of a song okay I've been there uh, lived through it and I'm still still a Christian okay <laughs> Lord have mercy I'm gonna I'm gonna get a nervous tick here um, okay so. There, I've just proved my own point that, you know, like there's a lot of passion be- behind uh, music and aesthetics. So uh, the, the, uh, uh, there was not discipline concerning uh, music. And, and here's, what, here's what the church said on paper. Chant is to be taught to everybody. So hardly anybody knows how to chant. And by the way, this goes all the way back, as I say, to the early 20th century. And reaffirmed in the 1920s and then the 1940s. Uh, priests you are to instruct your people to chant and they are to do the responses in at least ideally okay did that happen no why because it's hard and if it's foreign then it's all the more hard are you going to be that priest who who goes out on a limb and goes the pope said so let's all let's all chant the gloria we've never chanted the gloria before ever the choir has always uh, sang the gloria Well, the Pope says, well, so what what ended up happening was that this just wasn't actualized. I I had a parishioner who uh, grew up in my hometown of Portland, Oregon, and he goes, I remember, I remember in the 1950s, there were parishes in which they had done the hard work of uh, chanting and they did do the responses, and then every place else, still silence. Why? Because that's easier. Okay, so just appreciate, just even back then, because the Pope said something doesn't mean that it necessarily was actualized but the reality was that uh, right after the council music got crazy it also became um a moneymaker if you could publish a popular song copyright it and get royalties from hymnals that are reprinted and thrown away and reprinted and thrown away hey you only have to have a few such songs and you've made it and we could name names here of of people we know in the english-speaking world who did exactly that uh Terrible corruption of uh, the hypnotic uh, tradition in the West. Um, hymnody is allowed. It's a part of our tradition, yes. But properly speaking, on paper, the organ is the unique instrument of the Roman Rite. Uh, other instruments may be allowed, but I'm not aware that the uh, that either the Vatican or Episcopal conferences vetted them. So anything goes, all right? bongo drums hence you know things like that and um oh yeah i had bongo drums in my in one of my parishes in in uh 2008 when i got there uh i could tell you a story but we don't have time i mean i just about lost it uh, anyway one day all right <laughs> all right you want to go to the second one um Yeah, we
1: can... Sorry, we got got to keep moving. We
4: got to go to the the second one. So, So, in any case... Language, number two. Okay, language number two. All right, so, um, as you all probably know, the the Mass was offered in uh, in Latin, which nobody spoke any longer, therefore making it a universal liturgical language. Uh, But as an old priest once put it to me, he said, uh, so as they said, uh, anywhere in the world you went, uh, the Mass was the same, but on the flip side of that coin was anywhere in the world you went, uh, uh, you couldn't understand the mass, which is also true, okay? Mm-hmm. The reason that um, Latin came to be used was because it was the vernacular of the Latin-speaking West. And uh, uh, so, the, uh, you know, when people champion Latin, uh, they need to remember it was introduced, it was a pagan language, that became the vernacular of Christians and thus became a liturgical language. Mm. The apostles did not celebrate the Eucharistic liturgy in Latin. They celebrated it in Greek, amongst probably some other languages. Greek was the absolutely universal, going back to the apostles, Eucharistic liturgical language. And then imagine that only a few hundred years later, uh, a pope says, we are, instead of Greek we're going to start using the language of the, uh, of the pagans who, you know, like, martyred the apostles and so on. You could imagine a person saying, this is the most disgusting rupture of apostolic tradition. I can't believe this. We are going to use this vulgar language of, uh, of the street, Latin, when we have always used Greek? And the answer was yes. And why? Because the Pope said. <laughs> so then, you know, we, hundreds and hundreds of years go by. The Romance languages develop. Eventually, nobody's speaking Latin, up to the Second Vatican Council, which said in Sacrosanctum Concilium that its use was to be retained in the Roman Rite. They didn't say to what degree or how it is to be retained, and they said, and the vernaculars may be, uh, may be used, all right? Well, then it just went to all vernacular, right? Which is the extreme and um i'll explain when we get to the next section uh the proper application as best as i can discern it from the church's uh intention tradition and uh, documents but you know let's say the priest says let's start reintroducing some latin or let's uh, do the curie, you know in greek you're going to get people who are either going to moan why are you taking us back to the 50s blah 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 harum, harum. or yay finally uh you know father has the courage to reintroduce latin okay but, uh, but why? Uh, it's the Church's ideal that even if we are divided by language, at least we would be able to pray together and celebrate worship together. The irony with language is that since the 60s, the Catholic world has become more diverse, more multicultural because of immigration, which is a worldwide phenomenon. So I grew up in Portland, You've got a Vietnamese Catholic community, a Korean Catholic community, a uh, Hispanic Catholic community, um, an English-speaking Catholic community, right? The irony is, we took away a universal language, right? As we are all divided by our vernaculars. Mm, interesting. <laughs> and whereas I get it, I agree that people were not so much trained to understand Latin before. The ideal of the church, I think, is that we actually do un- we do understand it. So. Uh, uh, So learn to pray, not say, pray the Our Father in Latin so that when you get together with a Vietnamese Catholic who doesn't speak English, you could say Pater Noster and he could jump in and you can pray together, you can worship together. So we'll get into that, but Latin, or excuse me, language is certainly uh, one of our top five.
3: So we have sacred music, language, number three.
4: Priestly posture. So this is the issue of the uh, the direction of the priest uh, vis-a-vis the people while leading worship. So the um, so we use the term orientation, which literally means uh, easternation. Mm-hmm. Okay, orient is yeah. east, right? Yeah. So our tradition of praying towards the east, which is the direction that the sun rises, uh, lends itself to the very. Word orientation. Okay, so ad orientem means uh, towards or to the east. And uh, so Jews prayed towards the temple in Jerusalem, and uh, Christians then, dismissing uh, the temple as a privileged locus of God's presence, maintained directionality in their prayer. But they uh, decided to do it towards the rising sun, symbol of the resurrection and of Christ, light of the world. That was an absolutely universal practice, not not prescribed in ritual books. I really. think it was just universal, um, and it's well it's well attested to um, from ancient times and from documents uh, discovered and published and translated and so forth, uh, unquestioned. And then I believe it was nineteen sixty four, sixty five. Uh, Pope Paul VI offered a Mass in Rome facing the people, but outside of St. Peter's Basilica, and that was seen as an affirmation of uh, the the Pope wanting uh, the priest to face the people. So altars were changed, thanks were changed, and the cat was out of the bag. What was was behind that? Um, Erroneous uh, scholarship, actually and uh, here, here's what it was. There was belief, sincere, but since proven to be erroneous, that um, if you study some of the, uh, the oldest churches in Rome, you could be led to the uh, assumption that uh, in more ancient times, uh, the ministers, the priests, you know, did f- face the people in Eucharistic liturgy. That has since been shown to be false, but it kind of got out there in popular journals and talk and so on. And so it was thought, let us restore that posture. It actually was no restoration. It was an innovation and a rupture and changed the mass radically. When everybody's facing the same direction, that's one thing. When we're facing different directions, when we're looking at each other, then uh, things become very different. And I would say even a little bit uh, awkward. Now, of course, I grew up never knowing anything but the priest facing the people, was ordained uh, f- f- celebrated all my Masses facing the people. But then when I studied the liturgy, and I studied Ratzinger, and I saw, wow, you know, uh, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger had the courage to to say when this was not the norm, that, th- that this was a mistake, and we need to go back. What's behind that? So I studied it, and then I began to practice it privately when I would celebrate Mass, and I realized it just made sense, and there were so many benefits to it. Um, and so I implemented it in uh, my parishes. I believe very firmly that uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, future Pope Benedict, was absolutely correct there. And uh, I would hope that the Church would one day in my lifetime say, we, we made a mistake and we need to go back. Now again, is this in Sacrosanctum Cochilium? No. No, it's not. It is, and it is still a legitimate option in the Church. In fact, uh, uh, the, uh, the argument may be strongly made that the Roman Missal, the current Roman Missal, still presupposes uh, the priest facing east, or, if you will, the same direction as the uh, worshippers that he is leading when he is offering the Eucharistic prayers at the altar. Not all the prayers, through all the Mass, but when he's at the altar and when he's addressing God, they're facing the same direction.
1: Beautiful. Uh, Can I cut you off for a second? Um, Father Scalia... The uh, son, who's uh, of Justice Scalia, um, Anton Scalia's uh, son, just recently put a a, a, an interesting article out saying, like, this is actually the central question and how we can kind of bring bring the the Roman right kind of back in, so to speak, into a deeper experience of the the tradition. So, in Denver, this is starting to happen. Our Lady of Lords is the central place, and I wanted to just ask Father Sean, like, your experience of. Ad Orientum, as we call it, facing the East. We just did a wedding
3: together on Friday. Kind of, how's it been the last year and a half? I will say I'm grateful with two parishes. I get both Ad Orientum and Versus Populum uh, day by day, week by week. And so it's not so much that I get one only. So I get to experience both. And I will say there's just something, as the priest, there's something really profound about praying the Mass at Orientum. You're not distracted with... Um, you know, something catches your eye by chance or whatever it is, or I owe that person an email, right? I owe that person a phone call. Uh, You can just really focus in looking at the crucifix, looking at the altar, looking at the tabernacle and really pray the mass. And to your point, Father Eric, too, when you're praying the mass, the prayers are directed to the father, not to the people. So you're not saying literally take this, all of you and eat of it. You're saying to the father, what Jesus was praying at the Last Supper. And so you're addressing the Father, and so it makes sense to me to be ad Orientum. And there's something very freeing about that being a priest and, yeah, like I mentioned, looking at the, the crucifix and whatnot and actually making it a prayer. Father Eric,
1: uh, question for you, and then we'll have you wrap this section up, but um, St. Peter's Basilica mm-hmm. was a difference in orientation from an ancient uh, time Yes. Thoughts on that? Yeah. Uh, so th- this yeah. is an important point, and I,
4: I'm glad that you brought this up. Uh, so uh, Saint Peter's Basilica, uh, through um, you know an accident of history, uh, faces uh, faces west, not east, and that is where the Second Vatican Council was held. And so the Pope, when he would celebrate Mass at the papal altar, would be facing down the nave which then lent itself to people thinking, oh, you know, this talk about uh, uh, orientation, uh, we see this here. The reason that he faced down the nave was to face east. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because the Church was, you know, directionally backwards, if you will. And uh, I can't help but think that the, the bishops who were in a reformist mindset are there, must have thought, this is actually nice, this is actually nice to, to see the face of the celebrant and to be um, in a position almost like a congregation. And if this is nice, and it was also ancient, which it wasn't, but if it was, then let's do this. And so they go home, and they do it, and it's not based in tradition or in fact. But St. Peter's Basilica as being the place where the bishops were meeting, uh, I think, played a role. Uh, in that
1: so fantastic great yep. answer uh, any final thoughts on that before we go to number nope, four no nope.
4: let's let's go on that's, that's, right. that, yeah the priestly posture is actually a pretty simple one i encourage people to study the the matter number four is uh reception of holy communion this uh, is a this is a great one i love this I, one. yeah yeah here we go you love this one yeah, this yeah, is one.
3: this is where it's gonna get heated right here
4: oh boy okay well um so uh, here would be some some issues how do you receive communion do you receive communion on the tongue do you receive communion on the hand, uh, do you receive communion kneeling? Do you receive communion standing? Do you receive communion only uh, of uh, one uh, uh, form, such as the body of Christ, or both forms, uh, body and blood of Christ? Uh, sound familiar, folks? Sure, it sure does. Um, and uh, and from whom do you receive it? Do you receive it from Janet, the super volunteer. You know. Who's there with her own line, you know, or from the man who consecrated the the host or a deacon, perhaps. All right. So there's a lot going on here. Um, So before the Second Vatican Council, the only one who received from the chalice, that is the precious blood, was the priest. Sacrosanctum Concilium, the constitutive document of the council, said that communion under both kinds may be granted... uh, In cases that were to be quite exceptional but nevertheless exist okay Um, that was then expanded uh, to more uh, with the uh, addition new edition of the missile Um, and it was the intention of the church as best as I can discern that uh, holy communion uh, the precious blood of Christ might be offered on very very special occasions your first communion your wedding day um, Uh, or uh, high solemnities, maybe Corpus Christi, or something like that. Okay, every Mass all the time, no, and the way that that occurred in the United States was actually through just blatant disobedience on the part of uh, the U.S. Bishops' Conference uh, to first Pope Paul VI, who said, stop this, and then to Pope John Paul II. I mean, I just got into the matter actually recently with somebody else, it's there it's documented it's it's pretty disgusting and thankfully we're in a different place now um but that's how we got there well if you're going to distribute the precious blood uh in mass e-n-m-a-s-s-e then you're going to have uh you're going to have abuses you're going to have spillage Mm -hmm. you're going to have the precious blood being poured down um, a sacrarium drain or worse you are not going to have enough sacred ministers, and so you're going to have to deputize laity, which is not supposed to happen uh, for this to be normative. Um, problematic. Uh, let's talk a little bit about posture. Um, there is, of course, now a, um, a renewed interest in people kneeling to receive Holy Communion. So this is a matter which is I've preached about and taught about in my parishes, uh, and has caused a little bit of uh, angst. Um, so here's the uh, here's the background. In terms of universality, um, the posture has always been standing. You go to the different rites of the church or different liturgies, um, it is standing, not kneeling, not sitting or anything else. It's standing. And let's say that you were to go back to uh, a Mass in, oh, I don't know, you know, 1100 A.D., what would, it, what would communion time look like? It would look like very few people, firstly, if anybody, presenting themselves for Holy Communion. It would it would be a rude screen, which is a um, semi-perforated wall in the West, uh, which uh, was later cut down to become an altar rail. Um, and there were doors there or an entrance. And at communion time, the minister would come there to the door of the sanctuary where it meets the nave and anybody wanted to present himself for holy communion of course only the body of christ would come forward stand receive and then walk away remember no pews no kneelers or anything like that what seems to have happened after uh, the council of trent and its emphasis upon transubstantiation was uh, two things firstly uh, the rude screens were dismantled because uh, get this not vatican ii but trent emphasize the people's understanding of what was taking place in the Eucharistic liturgy. So, was there a mandate from the Pope, take out the rude screens that are blocking the view? As far as I'm aware, no. They were rather organically cut down. You know, let's say maybe to five feet in height, and then to four feet in height. If you go to Rome, there are still churches that have uh, cut down rude screens, which we assume are communion rails. However, if you go up and kneel down at one, to pray, you'll find your arms are almost at nose level. It's not a communion rail. It's a cut-down architectural barrier made to distinguish the beginning of the sanctuary from everything else. Well, then, over time, it seems, that was cut down because the faithful were expressing piety and they were kneeling along this barrier. And so, to make it comfortable for them, it becomes a communion rail. The communion rail is an innovation Of only a few hundred years. The posture of kneeling has been practiced uh, for only a few hundred years, um, and has its benefits. However, if we really want to be traditional, and if we really want to be Catholic in the sense of universal, uh, the responsible thing is to admit, well, that's actually kind of a curiosity, Uh, but standing and uh, receiving on the tongue, not in the hand, is, uh, is the, the uh, most appropriate, I think, way to receive. Where did communion in the hand come from? came from the, uh, the scholarly study of liturgical uh, texts from the ancient uh, times, one of which are the very famous Jerusalem catecheses of uh, St. Cyril, in which he describes to uh, the newly initiated how to properly receive the body of Christ in their palm. Okay, well, if no less than St. Cyril in no less a city than Jerusalem is doing it that way, you know, I'm pulling this out of a habit, let's say, like, around the year 400 or so, well, then we should restore that. Again, well-intentioned, however, um, I would point this out. The Church might have done that. Well, not might have, did do that, okay? But she eventually, universally, in every rite, in every place in the world, stop that practice. Why? We could speculate on that. Most likely because of abuses or, and all the things that we experience today. People coming into a church, going up in line, taking the Eucharist, walking out with it, not knowing what it is. People taking it for demonic uh, worship or abuse or to hold it hostage or to profane it or to take it home and pray before it because they're pietistic. Whatever it is, inappropriate, right? The Church eventually discerned we can't be putting the body of Christ in people's hands anymore. And so whether you're in a Byzantine liturgy or a Roman liturgy, it was you were fed, you did not feed yourself. Mm. And I believe that, uh, that it is uh, good for us to return to that discipline. And communion in the hand, I will tell you, uh, began again as an abuse, uh, disobedience of the Vatican that became so widespread it had to be tolerated.
1: And that was John Paul II in the late
4: 1980s, correct? No, that was uh, Paul VI era. Okay. Yep. 1970s, basically. Yep. <laughs> no,
1: but I was saying when it became so, like, let's say somebody has been receiving in the hand and they're saying, Am I doing that? Have I been doing this wrong? It has been permitted. It, it has been permitted, yes. But it was an abuse during the 1970s. An abuse in the 1970s permitted by John Paul um, and still legitimate. Yes, it's still legitimate But today. What, you're, what you're proposing and what really struck me this summer in our conversation was the the nobility of thinking with the Church when you understand the history, the integrity, and the theology of the Eucharist is to receive on the tongue standing. Yes, to receive, exactly. And
4: there's a, there's a big difference between being fed and feeding oneself. Mm-hmm. It also eliminates, practically speaking, all of the abuses that we priests experience, right? Uh, dro- dropping the blessed sacrament, spilling the, the blessed sacrament, um, um, a person wandering away and you're going, whoa, 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 what yeah. are you doing? You know, and all of these sorts of things. And uh, also, people who, God bless them, they come to a Catholic church. Maybe at an invitation of a friend or curiosity. Everybody's going forward. They go forward. You, you see people putting out your hand. That's not that unusual thing from the world. But opening your mouth and putting your tongue out a little bit to be fed, that never happens anywhere. It's very clear immediately if somebody's not a Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> if everybody's receiving on the tongue and somebody comes up and they're they're like, I don't know what to do and you go, Are you a Catholic? Yeah. No. Okay.
3: This is a pretty like American problem, isn't it? Like that like, when when I've traveled to, uh, in Europe and I go to Mass, everyone's expected to receive on the tongue, right? No no one really Some received.
4: places, but because we're so influential, uh, what might have begun as an American problem is certainly spread through influence. And as one person once said to me, English has really become the new Latin of the Mass yep. because everybody speaks English mm-hmm. wherever you go, right? And so, unfortunately, we've, we've exported a lot of our abuses. Um, so communion on the hand started as a disobedience uh the precious blood offered with extreme liberality as an abuse and then another famous uh abuse which will uh, lead us into the next one was um
1: uh, girl altar servers actually yeah. before we go into the next one i just want to point out here in your your practice i've been to your parish i've been mm-hmm. to your masses um beautifully kind of authentically. Um, uh, presentation of the Roman rite, though people still leave and go to the extraordinary form and these things. Um, but your 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 counsel and your catechesis and your formation of the people is to receive on the tongue, but not to kneel, because that's, this that's is kind correct. of this is yep. like a new thing, like yep. where people are kneeling and it's it, they're trying to, I think, do something beautiful. They're yep. trying to to acknowledge the reverence of the liturgy. But you're saying this is innovative as a liturgical practice. Well,
4: yes. So, um, so I have, uh, catechized my people on the reception of communion on the tongue versus hand, and I've encouraged them to receive on the tongue. And by and large, they all do with few exceptions because they, uh, they thought, Oh, you've explained it. It makes sense. Okay, let's do it. I get a little bit more resistance when it comes though, to the kneeling versus standing. Now I've explained as I just did to you, you know, if we're really, if we're really traditional here, people, <laughs> uh, Standing is actually more traditional. Okay, but people like uh, what they like and some people are more strident than others, right?
1: Jacob Machado.
0: Yeah question. Um people might be thinking uh, about Receiving the precious blood in the prayers. We say take and eat take and drink and then we don't offer to drink Uh, Is there a discontinuity here one and then two we've talked earlier uh, on the podcast about We call it communion. That we become together, right? And so there's there's a just a sign value of yes. doing the same thing. If and we're so, all doing
4: our own thing, yeah. our different thing, yes.
0: Um, and I think also with the Ruthenian rite, uh, they receive both the body and the blood together, but standing and fed to them by the spoon. yeah, and that's it. That's the Eastern Ruthenian Catholic tradition.
4: Um, also the Byzantine.
0: Yeah, and so when do you know if the West uh, made that decision? And also we're combating the heresy of people that believe if I didn't receive both, I didn't receive all of Christ.
4: Sure. Sure. Uh, so, uh, I could, I can imagine that, uh, Father Nepples uh, sweating under the, uh, time constraints here.
0: Let's <laughs> call Wait. it a two-parter. So, no, it's great. It's no, great. so that's I'm, I'm great. No, so I'm going to
4: make too. this an extra long question because I enjoy him being anxious. No, <laughs> uh, uh, answer. No, uh, Okay, so I'm going to be real quick for the sake of brevity. Um, so, in the West, the, uh, uh, the reason that the Roman Rite withdrew distribution of the precious blood commonly is a bit shrouded in mystery, but scholarship would give us a few indications as to why. One thing was, it was not possible to, uh, to get wine everywhere everywhere. In Europe, uh, or stored such that it would not corrupt, such that it could be a universal thing. Um, so, let's say Greece, you can have wine all the time. Italy, you can have wine all the time, you know. Uh, maybe not uh, England. <laughs> I don't know. So, that we know that there were some problems concerning uh, concerning that, the, the matter of the sacrament. We also know and can presume that because in the Roman Rite, it preserved the separation of the precious blood in the chalice rather than the commingling in the Eastern rites. That meant that there was the risk of spillage. There's not that risk in the other rites. You see, there's just these very practical things. When you have chalices and hands and moving around, Jesus' precious blood may be spilt and walked upon. There's, there's really not too much risk of that when you have uh, a bread which absorbs it and then is administered by a spoon. Did I did I answer all the questions that you posed? I'm sorry. Yeah,
0: that was the the general. Just to kind of give some yeah. more, more background. To oh, people, you asked
4: about people wondering about know, not receiving the whole Christ. Uh, the church officially teaches that you receive the whole Christ, either the precious blood or the body of Christ. So again, we get into heresy, thinking with the mind of the church. There's no room for disagreement on that. That is official church teaching. As far as uh, the posture position, the point that you made is very good. When everybody is doing their own thing, then there is distraction and there's division. And I'm just going to say it, okay? We all know it, so I'm just going to say it. When everybody is doing one thing and one person or couple or family or group clearly and in- does something else that everybody can see, that distracts everybody because you notice it. Yep. And you and we play all these mind games. Who are they? What are they doing? What's with that? Hmm. Et cetera. And I just think like folks, we need to stop that. And so what's going to be our norm? The mind of the church. The mandated uh uh ordinary position for reception of the Holy Communion in the United States is standing. And uh uh, when communion was denied to people who would kneel let's say back in the 90s the church had to say that communion could not be denied them which is true that is very different than saying you have a right to kneel the church has never said that she has normative postures she has normative prayers you are not supposed to be just saying well i'm just going to do something different now you're not thinking with the mind of the church be be docile you know, we don't like when priests do that. <laughs> now we see that, too, with, with lay people.
3: Since COVID, I will say that most churches have stopped distributing the precious blood. It seems like they just haven't brought it back yet. And That's so, correct, yeah. I think there's some good there um, for the sake of, you know, the spillage and whatnot. Um, so so you would probably articulate then that uh, kneelers should not be used at Mass, Kneelers are a communion rail, like uh, no.
4: kneelers. Predues set up in lieu of a communion rail. Correct. Correct. That's right. That is that is a that is an innovation. And here's a thank you for bringing that up because we see that now. Okay, innovations that do not have bearing in our tradition. We had a lot of them from a liberal perspective, and uh, we you know we I would say you know we shouldn't have done that. Well, setting up two predues in front of a sanctuary is an innovation, but just of a conservative nature. Okay, we need to stop with the innovations. (laughs) We need to stop with every priest doing something different. And I'll make an example of my bishop, Austin Vetter, wonderful priest, wonderful man, excellent pastor and bishop. Um, He asked me and some of the other priests in our diocese who were offering the Mass Autorantum to cease doing so because... He wanted to, and now I'm using my own language, he wanted to establish liturgical normalcy, a norm, before we then have liturgical diversity in our diocese, where, quite frankly, it was, there was no normalcy. Everywhere you went, it was something different and problematic, right? So I acquiesced to his request. He was very, he was very respectful to me, I hope I was respectful to him. I said, I will do as you request. I don't like to do it because I believe in not orient him. I've catechized my people with everything. But I explained it to them. They understood it. Okay. That's an accommodation. It's similar. Okay. It's not the same, but it's similar. We need to get to a norm, which we are far from right now. And uh, and in the end, we can't all get what we like. You like your pray I'm sorry, they might not be appropriate. Now, lest anybody think, oh, he is an anti-kneeling, anti-communion rail bigot that Nepple and company flew into Denver to advance their liberal agenda. No. When when I, let's say, lead a pilgrimage in Rome and there is a uh, communion rail there, we use it because it's a legitimate part of our tradition too. It was also an innovation, but it's part of our tradition. And I want people to experience it, and they, they can experience it in Rome. But we don't have one in our church. I don't have the authority to install one. And uh, quite frankly, because I understand standing to be uh, the uh, the uh, universal uh, posture, traditional posture of receiving communion, if I did put put in uh, an altar rail, I wouldn't necessarily use it to distribute communion. <laughs> Maybe that strikes people as odd. But
1: um anyway, I'm getting anxious. We got to go to the number 5. Oh, I love it. That was Good. a great that was I'm really happy you brought up that point though because that's that's I think that's one of his finest nuances. Yeah, uh, I really like that. All right, Role of the Lady. Um and you uh bet. So this is number five. 5. Let's
4: talk about
1: uh, girl ultra servers.
4: Yeah, I'm Oh, man. Well, it's the Role of the Lady. That's the topic. Uh girl ultra servers uh might fall uh, within it. So, um, uh, the church allowed after the council for lay persons, uh, both men and women, to play roles within the liturgy. Um, uh, was this a departure from tradition? I would have to say this is uh, this is a little bit of a gray area, not black and white. So, beginning um, after the council, you might see a fe- a female reading uh the uh, the scriptures before the gospel but she wasn't a lector why because she could not be installed as a lector mm-hmm. right technically lector was one of the minor orders leading up to uh to ordination of the major orders uh diaconate uh, priesthood etc okay um but i think that uh you know that was uh that was tolerated and thought of as a good thing also uh, lurking in the background, though, was uh, an ideology that, is, uh, uh, f- that is, does not come from Christianity and is actually, uh, you know, uh, arguably uh, semi-Marxist in its origins and anti-Christian, and that is feminism. Sorry, folks, if, you'd, if you're taken aback by that, but look into it, study it. Feminism um, and its uh, uh, underlying first principles are incompatible with, with Christianity. Anyway, that's Father Eric Elba, there. That's not uh, uh, the Pope or anything. But there was the feminist agenda to get as many females as possible involved in the liturgy, which they had never been before. Mm-hmm. A very, very excellent bishop uh, liturgically once made this point to me. He said, females have never played a role in the Eucharistic liturgy. And just the, the straightforwardness of that kind of struck me like, really? And then you study it, and you're like, oh, that's true. Yes, there were women who would assist uh, with the baptismal liturgies and things like that, but Eucharistic liturgy in the sanctuary? No. No, never. Okay. And so, um, because there was a feminist agenda to uh, advance the idea of women being ordained priests, why? So that they could have power— we first need to get girls dressed up like little priests, namely as altar servers. So let's get them in a priestly robe, which is a cassock, or an alb. Let's dress them up like a priest. Let's get them right in there in the Eucharistic liturgy as closely as possible. And then let's highlight the injustice of saying, oh, but you know what, Sarah, sorry, you can't ever become a priest. Okay, incrementalism, uh, which is one of the reasons that I do not have female altar servers. This again was an abuse. Uh, in the 1970s, uh, in the United States, widespread. Um, eventually, an accommodation had to be made for it. It was allowed. So today, is it, uh, is it legitimate? Yes, in the sense of it's allowed. I argue that it is utterly foreign to the uh, the tradition of the Church and is kind of like ad orientum, something that really should be revisited. However, the Bishop of Rome, Pope Francis, has recently um, allowed females to be instituted in the minor orders. Yep. How does one reconcile that? Um, since I, I'm not afraid to say this, I am not Pope Francis apologist. Mm-hmm. I tell my people, yeah. I cannot explain that. And I'll leave it at that. <laughs> but, uh, um, uh, one of the, uh, problems I would just say to wrap up this uh, subject, uh, is that, um, uh, having lay persons assisting in roles that are explicitly ministerial is inappropriate, though common. And we see this uh, most often with the distribution of the Eucharist, right? So, um, so I and my deacons are the only ones who distribute the Eucharist to my parishes. We're also able to accommodate the number of communicants, um, and I acknowledge you could have masses where you might have one priest, no deacons, and... A thousand people, so you might need to deputize people. The church allows that, but she also prohibits that. That be uh, uh, ordinary and without grave necessity. So the common experience that people have now of father, he's up there by himself. He's got uh, he's got uh, Heather and uh, Janie, the two little altar server girls, and helping him. And uh, Dolores is reading the scriptures and Jennifer is the cantor, he is the only male, and then when it's time for a community to be distributed, you know, eight women, middle-aged women, rise up and come forward and receive chalices from him. What does that, what's the effect of that? Well, the effect is, this is the most emasculating vocation that anybody could have, because Father is just surrounded by girls and women, and, uh, and also, in my reception of the community, I'm disconnected from Father, right? Right. So uh, I don't mean to be disrespectful or condescending or pejorative, but I do want to kind of name
1: some a reality that we can probably all identify with. We certainly can, and the the word that comes to mind for me is just there's an incoherence that happens. I remember my last parish that I worked at regularly. Um, I remember looking around the sanctuary one time, and it was like me and four like teenage girls. Okay, this isn't like little girls. This is like, and it's just like, what am I doing up here? This to, like there's there's a there's incoherence in terms of the maleness of the priest, which is rooted in the maleness of the God Man, mm-hmm. which is very intentional, which is not just some kind of social construct that comes he, out of a Greco-Roman he did not come as patriarchal twins, right, boy and girl, and no. uh, it says something about the the Marian nature of the Church, which is actually deeper and more comprehensive, but we won't get into that. Um, but yeah, there, there's something deep about that. And I know that at Lords they, they have the same practice. And there's something that's that's coherent, and it makes sense, even in the mind of a, my eight-year-old nephew, yeah. who is like, if he's thinking about priesthood, this makes sense. I serve at this altar. It's pointed to Father Sean, who I know, and, and Jacob Machado, who's a seminarian, who's right there with him. Like, there's something incremental here for me in terms of thinking about and orienting my life and the the masculine nature of the priestly office, which is instituted by Christ divinely, um, it makes sense to him. When you throw in a bunch of little girls with that, he's not only is does it become incoherent; he's like it loses that kind of trajectory. He's also like, "I'm not, I'm out. I don't want to do this. Yeah. I don't want to do
4: this." Yeah, there's no better way yeah. to
1: kill an altar
4: server program of its boys than yeah. I'm sorry to say, but than to have girls.
1: Yeah, the girls will serve through high school. The boys won't. Okay, final thoughts on this before we go to our last topic. Okay, I want to I wanna conclude this uh, third section here. Um, this has been fantastic. So uh, we're, do- we're done with the top five uh, folks who are listening. Yeah, thank you. So this is kind of, what would the ideal Mass look like according to the, the Church's ideal documents? Now, I want to ask you that question. This is the third part and final part, and we're going to wrap it up here with this. But I want to situate it around a particular question I have, and I know that you have as well because we've talked about this. When you talk about the ideal, what does this look like? Where do we go? What we, we got a lot of practical things. We've talked about an immense number of topics, but I want to specifically talk about the "quote unquote" traditional Latin Mass versus the "quote unquote" Novus Ordo. Okay, mm-hmm. and saying what is the Roman Rite? How do we think with the Church? And if I'm listening to this as a as a kind of a, a desirous roman Rite catholic who wants to serve the church and be robustly and fully catholic but i find myself moving in a trajectory towards the latin mass of pope pius v uh where what do you have to say about that in light of the larger kind of conclusions you would draw so it's not just not just answering that question but kind of tailoring our our final section in light of that sure
4: sure okay so so i'll i'll lead into our uh, or i should say my description of what as best as I can tell, uh, an ideal mass would would be by answering your question, and uh, I'll I'll reference a quote from uh, from the author uh, uh, in English would be Denis Cruan, or he's a Frenchman Denis Cruan, uh, published by Ignatius Press, his little book "The Liturgy Betrayed." I wish that I could, I wish everybody would read this little book, and I hope that uh, Ignatius Press will have enough to supply uh, interest, perhaps from this podcast, because. I think it's been a few years since they printed it. This fantastic little book addresses many of the uh, issues that we've talked about. And when I read it, uh, something that he said, um, and by the way, I mean, he's no leftist, (laughs) you know, uh, it was this. It hit me between the eyes. He said, uh, by way of conclusion, the old liturgy that some people want to label as, in quotes, traditional, is not all that traditional. And I I read that and I was like, that's a bold Hmm. statement. He unpacks the reasons why in this and explains, you know, you you thought that it was always this way? No, it wasn't. 300 years, how about that? You think that this went back to the time of the apostles? It was arbitrarily inserted by a French emperor uh, or whatever. And you learn these and you're like, oh. And then you can come to appreciate why the fathers, you know, and scholars pointing these things out, you know uh you go the 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 liturgy from the patristic age uh became um burdened with uh accidents of history and and uh, all kinds of different things okay so traditional latin mass is actually not as traditional as some people might assume it to be again we don't have time to get into every little issue uh but uh that's a that was a bold thesis from quran uh, the book is The Liturgy Betrayed, and uh, I make 5%. No, I'm just kidding. And I, no,
1: and I, I think that's a very <laughs> important thing, because the framework, the conversation, traditional Latin Mass versus Nova Ordo, we've got to stop talking like that, because yeah. that's not the language of the Church. Right, and... Uh, that, that is not, I don't know where that comes from, that's not the language of the Church, nor is it extraordinary form versus ordinary form anymore. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Pope Francis, um,
4: I don't think has been helpful... Um, in his um, pastoral approach to this very important issue. Again, no disrespect to the Holy Father. I disagree with the prudential judgment he's made in responding. Um, but I think that we should all be traditional. I don't think that uh, it's necessarily a good thing to be a traditionalist. If if by that you mean that you uh, you prefer something other than the norm of the church, the ideal of the church. So, what would that look like? Well, uh, let's let's go into it, and let's let's go kind of uh, quickly,
1: right? Because you're sweating over there. Sweating. <laughs> yeah, I'm loving this. This is just also the longest pon- podcast Ever. I've done. 500 podcasts, and this is the. You can split <laughs> this in two. but it's worth it. It's great. It's, I bet it's it'll fantastic. It'll still
0: be most people's favorite. It's so. been fantastic.
1: Oh. So continue. Finish okay. It off. All right. So, but you have 15 minutes. I'm cutting it at two hours. So, yeah. yep. Okay. No, yeah. No, that's fine. That's fine. We can get
4: through a mass in 15 minutes. <laughs> Right, because we're traditionalists. No, I'm just kidding. That was a low, low blow there. Low okay. Blow. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. Okay. So uh, this is uh, this is Father Eric Gilbaugh's proposal of what uh, the mind of the church, uh, uh, you know, proposes according to her documents, according to my study, according to tradition, um, a reasonableness, and so on. Technically speaking, what. Let's say that you went back and you got the council fathers together and you gave, gave them a view into the future and you said, this, is this what you have in mind? My proposal is they would go, yes, 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 that, that's, that's it. Okay. Not what you find, though, normatively speaking, outside of Our Lady of Lords, maybe, or, or uh, some other parishes. All right. So um, here's something that most people don't know. The, uh, <laughs> back to chant, uh, in the Reform of the Rite, It is prescribed that we are to have multiple psalms chanted throughout the Mass. Everybody's familiar with the, quote-unquote, responsorial psalm. Uh, That's one. How about five people? Did you know that there's actually five prescribed, four or five, depending? Uh, Do you ever hear those? No. So how how would this apply? Well, firstly, instead of an opening hymn, you would have an entrance psalm chanted during the procession of the ministers to the altar, and that would be done... Most likely uh, in the vernacular, so that people could understand it. Okay, Uh, and uh, that could be congregational responsorial. It could be the choir. It could be the scola. It could be the cantor, people. But point being, psalm Uh, ministers walk uh, to the altar. I would propose that it makes most sense that they kiss the front of the altar, uh, facing both the altar and the tabernacle. Why would why do you go around? poke your rear out towards the blessed sacrament, you know, face the people and kiss the altar. It makes no sense. So I don't do that anymore. Um, And then they would proceed to the chair or chairs, which were, again, part of the restoration of the liturgy because, uh, as those of you who attend low mass uh, in uh, the older uh, form of the rite know, by and large, um, Father does not sit down (laughs) and... uh, um, and he uses the altar as a, uh, as a missile stand, too. So going to the chair, a symbol of his authority, then, and either with somebody holding the, uh, the, the missile or with a stand, not using an altar as a stand, um, he would have the opening uh, rites um, beginning in Latin, the universal language. So when he says, In nomine Patris et Vili et Spiritus Sancti, People don't need to have a book in front of them to go. Oh, what's that? We should all know that means in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And he would greet the people again in Latin, the universal language. Dominus vobiscum. They would respond because they've been trained to know. Et uh, cum spiritu tuo means and with your spirit. Not rocket science. Not hard. Don't need a missile to be looking at right to do this. So as we go through, you'll see that the the ordinary of the Mass, the prayers that are always there would be in latin so you'd train your people to know the latin and for it to be familiar so that when you ask a a, a catholic uh what does pater noster mean he wouldn't go i'm not really sure or let me consult my missile he would go our our father hmm. like i've been doing this since i was a kid every catholic knows that we're not there but that, that that's the ideal so the the ordinary of the mass would be in the universal language The proper prayers of the Mass, that is, proper to the season or to that Sunday in ordinary time or whatever it is, would be in the vernacular, so in our case, English. So you don't have to have a resource. You don't even have to be literate. As many people are not throughout the world, you can't read, or you can't afford to buy a resource, a missile to follow along. You can just go to the Eucharistic liturgy, you've been trained in the universal language so you know it, you can pray in it, and then... The proper prayers are done in your vernacular language, whatever that is, and so you can pray them, right? So the opening uh, rites of the Mass would be in Latin, then the penitential rite would be chanted in... Uh, and then the Kyrie is Greek, so ch- some chanting Greek. The only part of the Greek liturgy, actually, that remains in the Roman Rite. Very, very nice. And then the uh, Gloria, chanted uh, in Latin. Again, emphasis on chant. Lots of chanting, foreign to us, perhaps, but the ideal of the Church. The Collect, then the opening prayer of the Mass, in the vernacular, so that people can just hear it and pray it, understand it. Chanted or perhaps spoken. Everybody's seated. First reading... Uh, read by a, a male lector or a deacon. Um, then the uh, responsorial psalm chanted in the vernacular so that everybody can understand it. Uh, then the second reading read in the vernacular. then the Alleluia, bit of Hebrew left in the liturgy, chanted with its antiphons. okay. Then uh, the minister proclaims the gospel deacon, priest, bishop. Um, passing in front of the altar on his way from the chair to the uh, lectern or ambo, um, giving the homily in the vernacular. Uh, then, after that, the creed. Uh, it's the ideal of the Church that <laughs> that everybody be able to uh, profess the creed in Latin. I think that's a pretty tall order. And I should mention here, Holy Mother Church, I love her, you know. Um, but sometimes she's prescribed things that are a bit too tall of an order to be practically uh, realistic. And I think that's actually been at the root of many liturgical problems. She, she says, this is the ideal. Now do it. And everybody goes, are you kidding me? Like, oh my gosh. it's. I mean, we haven't actually gotten to the Latin credo in my parishes just because we've been working up to it. I mean, the, we've been had to learn everything else. Uh, and we're doing well, but we still do the Credo in the vernacular, and I think that would be legitimate according to the Fathers of the Council. Okay, Chanted or spoken, and then uh, the intercessory prayers, spoken in the vernacular. Then uh, would come next the presentation of the gifts, one of the uh, aspects of the uh, ancient liturgy, uh, which had uh, been gone away and was restored uh, after the Council. Uh, usually the collections taken up at the same time. And then comes uh, the next psalm, the offertory psalm, which is prescribed. Now let me just mention here, all of these psalms that are supposed to intersperse the Roman Eucharistic liturgy, they were published in Latin, but they were by and large ignored by all translators, because it's 1974, and we don't care about Latin, and we don't care about chant, and we're singing Kumbaya, and they were left on the shelf. So, uh, you know, let's say today you wanted to actualize this in the vernacular. You find me the resource. Good luck. It's, see, uh, this is where liturgy just gets very practical, very real. Okay, Mm -hmm. so you go, all right, we're supposed to do this. All right, where is it in English? Oh, it's out of print, or nobody's ever printed it, or whatever. So, all right, just saying. All right, so uh, you would have the offertory psalm chanted, uh, then, the offertory prayers in Latin up through the Suscipiat, and that would also be with the priest facing orientem. back to one of our earlier issues, okay? Uh, a vernacular offertory prayer, again, so that nobody needs a resource, a thing in their hand, a thing to forget as they're going to Mass, or even the ability to read, okay? The offertory prayer in your own language. And then the preface chanted, Either in Latin, if it was such a simple form that everybody could could get used to it, or most likely in the vernaculars I usually do. Then, uh, which Eucharistic prayer after that? The Roman Canon, which is almost never used, but is supposed to be the normative prayer of the Roman rite, the Eucharistic prayer of the Roman
1: rite. Is that chanted? No, because th- you got to explain that real quick. Because I I've always wondered, like, why are we why are we chanting the introductory rites? And not the Eucharistic prayer, which is the holka yes. in the German. Like the hype, this is the highest prayer. the
4: The Eucharistic prayer may be chanted, but I think that there is an argument to be made for um, uh, for sensibility in that we chant the preface so that we chant we lead into the chant of the Sanctus. Okay, uh, but then now we are doing something that is a little bit different. We are beginning the institutional narrative. Um, which, uh, mind you, not every priest can chant, not every priest can sing. And a lot of the chant here up to this point may be led by a cantor or a schola or a choir, but now it's just the priest, and nobody else can do this. And let's be honest, very few priests can would have the capacity right. to do this. So I think that there is an argument to be made for solemnity and practicality that the Eucharistic prayer Uh, be spoken. And so I don't chant the Eucharistic prayer. I also don't chant the memorial acclamation because if I'm not chanting the rest of it, why would I break it up with that? But that's a little aside. So I propose the Roman canon be spoken in Latin, okay, but then all the way through the per ipsum, and that's through him, with him, in him, okay, that would be chanted in Latin again to lead into uh, the people picking up their chant response with the great amen, and then we go into the Our Father. So so chant is set aside for the Eucharistic prayer and picked up with the peripsum. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, all right. Again, practicality has an awful lot to do with uh, liturgy. Um, and by the way, I'll give somebody a doctoral dissertation subject, no charge. The role of... Uh, one particular form of 20th century technology in liturgy i've never heard anybody talk about it i've never heard anybody write about it how would we be doing a lot of the things that we do without electricity Hmm. electric light electric sound electric heat uh yeah Let's get back on track here. All right. Yeah. All right. So we're now up to the, uh, to the amen. Again, Hebrew chanted, then the poster Noster, the Our Father chanted in Latin. Uh, the following prayers spoken, most likely in Latin, leading into the kiss of peace. Again, uh, an aspect of the Roman rite that uh, was lost and then restored. Um, although I don't think it's in a good place right now, it could be moved to a better place. Again, Benedict suggested that as a cardinal, then didn't do it as pope. Come on, you know, <laughs> you can do it, but he didn't. Uh, agnus Dei chanted in Latin, and then the uh, the ecce agnus Dei sum dunius spoken in Latin. The people then respond, you know, um, Lord, I'm not worthy, in Latin. Okay, then uh, we begin communion. So then there's our final psalm, the communion prescribed psalm chanted, uh, communion received from the sacred minister, that is the bishop, priest, or deacon, body of Christ, alone, under almost all circumstances, on one's tongue, while standing, but possibly also kneeling, Um, if from the chalice, then from a sacred minister, not a lay person, then the ministers would purify the vessels at the altar um, or credence table, allowing some sacred silence, which the Church desires, not just constant music, constant, you know, filling of the space, but a little bit of silence before the closing prayer in the vernacular, which could be chanted or spoken, and the dismissal in Latin and the minister's exit with no closing song. Uh, Most people don't realize a closing song is not prescribed in the Roman Rite at all. Not even a closing psalm. We are supposed to... We say, uh, go. We're supposed to go. We don't say, go, but don't go, pick up a hymnal, and now let's all sing... We are the light of the world. No, that is not what's supposed to happen. We're done. The liturgy is concluded. Now let's all make our acts of thanksgiving, kneel down in prayer for a few minutes. Not be distracted with a congregational hymn. Uh, so we've eliminated the uh, the closing song for many years in my parishes, and uh, and it works well. So um, you know, I, this is a lot to digest. I know uh, for uh, for people. And I think that maybe, by way of conclusion, I might just make a few uh, few comments. We all have our different tastes. We all have our different biases, experiences. I say you can't argue with experience. You know, you might hear all of these points that I make, and go, "Okay, maybe they're true. Maybe they're not. I don't know who you are, but I do know this, and what I know is my own experience." <laughs> you know, uh, if though we are Catholics, if we are Christians, if we trust God and His providence and the Holy Spirit, in the end, uh, we have to let go of our starting points being my preferences. And you could say those are tastes, aesthetics, whatever, but my preferences, and I want the worship of Almighty God to conform to my preferences, as opposed to, I conform my preferences to what the Church prescribes for the worship of Almighty God. So, you don't like chant? Doesn't matter. Who cares? I could care less, you know. I didn't say, I like chant, or I like hymnody, or I like Latin, or I don't like Latin, or any of these things. I I love the Church. I trust the Church. And if the Church says, use Latin, okay, I use Latin. If the Church says, chant, okay, I chant. If the Church says, don't do this, I don't do that. And that's the end of it. Why? Because I'm a son of the Church. I love her. I trust her. I believe in the Holy Spirit's guidance of her. Even through her you know uh, foibles and, and fallen pastors and all of that. Uh, you know And there's a lot of stridency right now. There are a lot of agendas, there are a lot of egos. There's a lot of division. We know that within the Roman Rite. And I fault the pastors of the church. I fault really us, you know, those of us who are ministers, mostly popes and bishops, but also priests and deacons because we have not established a secure norm for the benefit of all. And it is understandable that uh, the laity who have no power in any of these things, or not much influence anyway, you know, are frustrated and kind of scattered like sheep and going each their own way. What I say, though, is I hope everybody could appreciate that's not an ideal Um We've seen, you know, the bifurcation of the church into more extreme camps. Um, uh, we've seen, I lament, the loss of a lot of personnel resources in the reform of the reform. That was always the uh, the effort when I was younger. Let's reform the right. Let's not leave the Catholic Church. Let's not change the Catholic Church. Let's do what she says. But after the motto proprio, I noticed that a lot of people who are really quote unquote, into liturgy, just said, I'm exhausted by this project and I'm just going to go someplace where it's all pre-done, safe, and I'm going to I'm gonna take a breather there. And you go, no, 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 don't leave. Like, this is hard work. We have to do this hard work of reform. And a lot of people were like, ah, I'm out. Hmm. And uh, so the reform of the reform really has lost traction for many years. Where is the younger energy? It's with the traditionalist movement, isn't it? Right, yeah. and yet the traditionalist movement might be ignorant of some of the context that uh, I, we, you know, we've intended to be a benefit from this uh, extraordinarily long conversation. Extraordinary, <laughs> um, and uh, and so um, as I've said, if you're a Catholic, you should be traditional. Everybody should be traditional. That doesn't mean that necessarily uh, you should be traditionalist and we should all be docile sons and daughters of the Church, religious submission of intellect and will, Um, intellect meaning understanding the liturgy, will meaning willing what the Church wills, Um, and maybe let go of a little bit of uh, emotional fervor for this or that, and just try to be moderate, well-rounded Christians. And, you know, I'll leave it at that. That's, That's my two cents. And I'm just one man. I'm just one priest. You know, I don't have a doctorate in liturgy or anything, but for whatever it's worth, I'm here at the uh, the gracious request of my friend and I hope it would be of some benefit. And if you disagree with anything I've said, write to Father John Nepple, <laughs> yeah, Denver, Colorado. That's right. Shiny
3: yeah, that was great. Thank you, Father Eric. I, I love the presentation and just your, your wisdom, your knowledge, but particularly like you've done so much research into here. Um, just a question though with regards to the liturgy, with regards to the mass, as you're explaining it, that is the ideal, right? But then where people get dissatisfied is like, we're not at that ideal, right? And that's when you abandon and ship and go to a TLM community. You can't find this anywhere. This is right.
4: this is a hypothetical.
3: Right. Yeah. But that's where people get disappointed of like, oh, if I'm not getting that at this local parish, mm-hmm. even though this is as close as I can get to a traditional parish Mm -hmm. well it's not the full thing so i'm just going to go tlm yeah so how would you articulate what would you say to people who are disappointed that they're not the ideal like for instance um one of the things i can personally struggle with is uh sometimes at our mass the line for communion to the priest gets longer and longer and longer when the four other lay ministers have no one in line i'm like can you just go? Like, it's the same yeah. Jesus. And as you cl- concluded with, it's like, we do this, like, ultimately, it's about love of God. And are we getting lost in the details? And because I'm scrupulous, I have to go to the priest to receive communion. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, I, uh, I heard that, uh, I believe it's Father Gregory Pines once said, we've got to stop majoring in the minors. Mm. Amen to that. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we are supposed to be evangelizing the world and we're wasting our energies talking about internal things like this. Uh, Here's what I would say. I proposed an ideal, and I'm not saying that it's absolutely right, but it's as best as I can discern. But you know what? No ideal is ever perfectly or universally actualized. And and it wasn't before the Second Vatican Council. And this is an argument I want to make. You know? Who are the people who are investing themselves right now in uh, traditionalism? They're people who love it and are passionate about it and have energy for it and are generally younger. All right, but what if we take and we universalize traditionalism and we say that's the way it has to be everywhere? Well, let's just go back to 1960. That's the way it was. That means that mediocre priests are offering mediocre traditional <laughs> traditionalists, as we would say, now, masses. And guess what? They ain't that great. Because Father is doing everything in silence and he's rushing because he's got four masses in his ethnic parish. And they all they start at 6 o'clock a.m. And so mass lasts uh, 35 minutes. You couldn't hear anything. You don't know what's going on. Father rushed through the sermon. He wasn't very good anyway. There was no music. Uh, right now, the traditionalism that we find. Is artificially excellent it is artificially excellent mm. if you had somebody get up and begin to chant and they stunk they'd be out of there so fast because <laughs> that traditionalist group that's just driven 52 miles in a in a van to be there they're like we haven't driven 52 miles to hear somebody who can't chant mm-hmm. so that needs to change and uh, and that goofiness that has to change and so it's artificially excellent um, and so it's true that the ideal which I propose is the churches is found in very few places, but uh, there are things that are more important even than being in a liturgically ideal environment, not the least of which is being in loving relationship <laughs> with one another, our priest, our deacon, our laity, and uh, being spiritual families amongst, as parishes and and we and not just scattering uh like strangers gathered uh to to be satisfied aesthetically um that's not authentic that would be
3: my answer great yeah thank you
1: this has been a uh this has been a full course i think <laughs> i love it uh, I, I honestly do love it and I, I'm so happy that we we had talked about doing this in two podcasts we said let's just do it in wa- one long one but I hope that uh, I hope that those who have listened and made it to this point we want to hear from you like we want to hear this is going to be really interesting to hear just like how do you engage this because um, you know Eric is an old friend and he's somebody I trust immensely uh, who's s- researched and, and is versed and has come to some d- deep conclusions that I think are, are balanced um, in a field that I I'm not that familiar with and don't really understand and have not been in the parish, uh, so I'm not I'm not in this. But uh, we're going to want to hear from you. So I think Lords is a great example of many of these things. But I also think that the, he's invited you to think about some new things tonight. Yeah. Certainly it. for me, it's been a, a total kind of game changer. But um, Eric, you've provided tonight a path forward uh, because we can't just keep radicalizing into extremes and we can't keep hardening and your last point about just a preferential vision all that's doing is reinforcing the consumerist society of the liturgy and uh you you've given us a direction and an orientation how to think with the church and how to really worship god yeah and i even if i try to do it uh, according to this
4: model myself as a priest doesn't mean that i do it or do it well And do my people have to tolerate a lot of uh, foibles and uh, uh, things with me? Yes. But in the end, I hope that they would say, you know, what we love Father Gilbaugh, and we know that he loves us, and we need to know each other and love each other. And so even if, you know, he's not that good with this or he gets that a little bit wrong, we don't just split. Right. (laughs) Right? Yeah. And uh, uh, since you did mention uh, hearing from people, I should say that my my parish of residence is St. John Vianney, in Belgrade, Montana, easily found on the web, sjvbelgrade.org. If people would wish to uh, offer me their feedback, I'm certainly open to it. I hope that it would be respectful, um, and uh, uh, certainly if there are nuances to the theology that people... uh, more versed in uh,
1: liturgy would wish to offer me. I'd love to know the resources and so on. So, Well, I damn, can, better, be, better be because he's my friend, but also if you're disrespectful him, he's never going to share that Fiorentina steak when you're in Florence with him. Okay, <laughs> so just know that. Okay, uh, wrapping it up, shout outs just for Father Eric. Do you have any well, Any, anybody yeah, you want to shout out. Yes,
4: I'd have to shout out uh, to uh, my parishioner, Tia Mitchell. Tia! Who is a super fan <laughs> of yours. <laughs> and uh, and to all of my beloved parishioners, I yeah. love you. And forgive me for my failures liturgically, but I hope that uh, if you listen to this, then it might help you to understand what we're trying to do. And I think is very good and very beautiful. And, of course, Stella Gallic, right? My, my beloved goddaughter, yes, uh, now uh, in uh, North Dakota, I have many godchildren though, so yes, all of them. I can't, so. They can't
1: all be. But f- yeah, Mark is on the board of. The yes, podcast, her, fa- her uh, father uh, helps to make this uh, podcast. He possibly. approved of the uh, purchase to bring him down. So, Father Gilba, what a joy! You, no, are, you are you are a natural, brother. Don't you think, boys? Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for coming. I, I enjoyed this very much, and you are uh, you are a tremendous gift, and this was fantastic tonight. So we hope to have you back down soon enough. But uh, thanks again for being here. Awesome. Let's Thanks, close gravity. it up. podcast at gmail.com. Please do write us, especially on this topic. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.